Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to another edition of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I chat with cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, trainer, and author of six books, including How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, Mr. Donald Robertson. Donald has been researching stoicism and applying it in his work for 20 years, and he specializes in the relationship between philosophy, psychology, and self-improvement. He's also one of the founding members of the nonprofit organization, Modern Stoicism. I recently picked up and read the book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, and absolutely loved it. If you guys know me, you know I'm a big fan of stoicism and everything that falls under the stoic uh, umbrella, and so I had to reach out and get Donald on the show. Some of the topics we got into were first, who is Marcus Aurelius? Marcus is one of the first Stoics, one of the most famous ones of all time. And Donald kind of devotes his professional career into studying Marcus. He's also written several books and and biographies uh, uh, about Marcus. And I wanted to set the table of who is this guy and why should we be paying attention to him? After that, we talked about how stoicism can cure anger, and Donald actually has a TED Talk around this very topic. Then we talked about understanding anxiety and how to overcome it with stoicism. Then we talked about using voluntary hardships to tolerate pain. Pain has been a topic of uh, conversation, not only in my inner circle, but on this podcast quite recently. I think that's pretty interesting how stoicism can play a role in being able to tolerate it better. Then we talked about the dichotomy of control. And at the end, I wanted to really pick apart a piece of the book I found was really interesting. It's the difference between capital S stoicism versus lower lower S stoicism, if you will. And very cool to see the differences between the two and how some people are kind of getting it wrong when describing what stoicism actually is. That's towards the very end of the show. If you guys do enjoy the show, be sure to leave a rating and review as that helps my show grow tremendously. It's awesome to see it on your Instagram as you share it with your followers as well. I thank you all for the continued support over the last couple of years. It's so crazy that we're already on episode 144. I feel very grateful and it's just been a fun journey along the way. So without further ado, let's enjoy this show with Mr. Donald Robertson. Let's go. Donald Robertson, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, man. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I just finished up your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, and it's a fantastic read. It's cool that we can uh, come together, summarize, and talk about the book. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Very cool. So I was gravitated by the title of the book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And for the people that haven't read the book, I think what's important is to kind of first set the table to 
what is a Roman emperor? Who was Marcus Aurelius? What was, if we could just paint the picture, Donald, what was life like back then? And then we can kind of like move throughout the book. So first, who is Marcus Aurelius and why should he be so, why is he so important? Well, Marcus Aurelius was Roman emperor, um, arguably at the peak of Rome's power. The Roman emperors were all quite different from one another and they ruled in different ways. So there were good Roman emperors and bad Roman emperors. And Marcus Aurelius is generally seen by historians as one of the better Roman emperors. Even Roman historians viewed him as being uh, one of the the more admirable uh, Roman emperors. And he was a, a philosopher. And by that, in antiquity, was meant not only that he studied philosophy, like what we mean today by saying that someone's an academic philosopher, but it also meant something slightly different in the ancient world. It meant that someone followed a particular lifestyle, almost like saying that someone's a Buddhist or a a yogi today, like he had a regime that he followed. And so Marcus lived according to a philosophy of life, and that philosophy was Stoicism. And Stoicism was an ancient philosophy that flourished for uh, nearly 500 years, And Marcus wasn't the founder of it, but rather he was at the other end of the historical uh, time frame. He was the last famous Stoic of antiquity, and that's partly why people are interested in him. And they might know of him as well, because Richard Harris memorably portrays him in the first act of the movie Gladiator. (laughs) So that's old now, you know. I mean, um, I forget how long ago it was. I guess it was like 20 years ago or something that movie came out. But at the time, that kind of inspired a lot of people to go out and read The Meditations, um, the book that that Marcus Aurelius wrote, which is one of the most widely read self-help classics of all time. So that, in a nutshell, is who Marcus Aurelius is and why we're interested in him. Yeah. And you spent a lot of time researching, reading his material, as well as writing biographies about Marcus Aurelius. I'm curious, Donald, when you kind of put it all together, what are some of the main things that you admire from this guy? Is there two to three things that really impress you? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that interests me is that he was reluctant to become emperor. And many people uh, in, in the past were kind of reluctant about taking on the role of emperor. It, Marcus grew up during the reign of Hadrian, um, who many people admire as a Roman emperor. In some ways, Hadrian was a good emperor. But towards the end of his life, he went bonkers and became a violent despot. And that was the Hadrian that Marcus Aurelius knew. So Marcus saw that and thought, wow, I don't really want to be any part of this. Um, I, you know, I don't want to be surrounded by sycophants on the one side and people that are trying to assassinate me on the other side. This looks awful. Right, it's a car crash. And so he was really reluctant to get involved. But uh, he was too young to become emperor. So Hadrian had to appoint an interim ruler called Antoninus Pius, who became Marcus's adoptive father. And luckily for him, he was a very uh, wise and calm ruler. And when the, so one of the things that I find interesting about Marcus is in having initially been scared off of doing this, he then gradually changed his mind and thought maybe there's a way to be emperor uh, in the meditations, he says, maybe one can live well even in a palace, which sounds like a kind of paradoxical thing to do, but say, but what he means by living well is living wisely and virtuously, you know, and with integrity. And initially he thought it was impossible to do that in a palace and uh, as emperor. And then gradually he became persuaded that it might be possible. But he thought 
in order to do what Antoninus was able to do naturally, he would need to train himself because Marcus had a bad temper and uh, he felt he had some other character flaws that he needed to work on. And what we see in the meditations is kind of a record of him working on his own character. Like he recognized that he had flaws and he set, dedicated his life to trying to really improve his character. You know, he, he saw the responsibility that was going to be in his shoulders and, you know, rather than just kind of plunging into it and kind of exploiting it, he thought, I could do this, but I'm going to have to really work on myself. And then we can see, you know, we get to see what that looked like. So that's one of the things that I, uh, that I admire about him. Um, I guess another thing, Marcus says something very controversial, I think, in the, the meditations, and it's very timely, it's very relevant today. Um, actually, two connected things. First of all, I mentioned his anger. Marcus, like the other Stoics, recognised that anger is one of the biggest self-improvement problems that we face. And I can't emphasise enough how important I think that is because the market is flooded with self-help advice today. There are self-help gurus all over the place and people go on about self-help and they read lots of self-help stuff online. But from my perspective, as a cognitive behavioural psychotherapist, it seems to me there's a huge gaping hole in the contemporary dialogue about self-help. So people talk about dealing with their anxiety and their depression, but they say very little and do very little in online discussions with regard to dealing with anger and aggression. In fact, some of the self-improvement communities are very aggressive in their nature. Um, ironically, right? So there's particular self-improvement authors at the moment which I think, who I think actually in some ways encourage aggressive behaviour among their fan base, which is really ironic. So Stoics thought, well, this is one of the main things that people need to deal with. People often have a blind spot for anger and they were self-aware enough to think it's the kind of the royal road in some ways to self-improvement. For several reasons, I, I, I very strongly agree with that. And uh, so I think this is an important aspect of Marcus. He had this insight to realise that anger is easily overlooked, even among people who are into self-help. And he wasn't going to do that. Like, he took uh, responsibility for his anger and decided to address it. And the third thing I would mention that's related to that, the controversial thing, is that Marcus Aurelius was smart enough and savvy enough, I think, to question some of the prevailing values of his own society mm. in a way that would still be relevant today. And an example of that would be, contentiously, he questions the concept of manliness in Roman society. And he says, you know, uh, people, we know that one of Marcus's senior generals insulted him by calling him a philosophical old woman. And Marcus um, knew that certain individuals in Roman society thought that philosophy was unmanly and self-improvement was unmanly and violent, aggressive behaviour they thought of as a display of manliness. In the meditations, he directly questions that. He says, actually... It seems to me that what these guys mean by aggression and anger is a form of weakness. It's the opposite of psychological resilience. And Marcus says that he admired members of his own, the men in his own family, his grandfather and his father, for their gentleness and kindness towards others and their freedom from anger. And he says he thought that exhibited greater strength of character than these kind of superficial strength that other people admired, which he saw as actually a form of weakness in disguise. And so he questions this definition of manliness. You could even say, like, and this to throw a cat among the pigeons, 
that Marcus had identified the concept of toxic masculinity in the meditations 2,000 years ago that psychologists talk about today, that there are culturally prevailing concepts of what it means to be manly that are potentially quite psychologically unhealthy. Um, And that he um, was savvy enough and had the courage to question that um, and to come up with a, a definition of what it means to be a man that he considered to show greater resilience and greater strength of character, even though um, he, it was something that, that didn't quite mesh with some of the values of his own generals. Yeah, very much ahead of his time, as I was to assume that's what other people during that time thought as well, and that's what makes him who he is and who he was. I'm curious, Donald, this is a very loaded question. I know you did a TED Talk on it, but how, in your opinion, how does stoicism cure anger? Stoicism cures anger really, in a, I think, in a, a number of ways. And first of all, I'd say the Stoics adopt a very hard, surprise, surprise, you know, for the, Sto- the Stoics are known for adopting quite an extreme, quite a hard-nosed uh, position on, on a lot of moral and psychological questions. And their position on anger is extreme. They think they, this is a simplification, but essentially they think all anger is toxic. And that, would, that was contrasted with the position of Aristotle. Now, Aristotle adopted... Aristotle is known for typically adopting a more conservative, you could say a more kind of balanced position that that draws more on the prevailing values of society. And it would seem more like common sense to modern readers. Aristotle says, well, anger is good in moderation. Sometimes it could be useful as a way of motivating you. And the Stoics say that's poppycock, like for several reasons. Seneca in particular, we have an entire book on anger by him where he dismantles that Aristotelian position and says, no, 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 no. Because if we, first of all, it's based on a naive conception about how emotions work, as if they're just kind of uh, entities in themselves. Um, And the Stoics, following Socrates, introduced what we call a cognitive theory of emotion. And this is really absolutely defines their position, and it inspires modern cognitive psychotherapy. So it it has a big influence on, on how we understand emotions and psychology today. So Stoics said, look, when someone says they're angry, it's not just a feeling. Um, it's not just like a kind of physiological phenomenon. The anger consists of attitudes, beliefs, values. Um, and the key, the crucial thing about that is that thoughts and beliefs have propositional content, by which I mean they can be true or false. Let me give you, a, I explain why I think that's so important as a psychotherapist. So important. In fact, if there was nothing else that people took from the top you know, the discussion that we're having today, I would say that this is actually the most important thing to take away because as a, a therapist, uh, we encounter this with every client almost. So clients will come into therapy and they'll talk about their anger, fear, sadness, whatever, and how it's troubling them. And usually in the initial assessment, the assessment session, the client talks a lot about the problem. They define the presenting problem. And you, one way of viewing that is that they'll, they'll typically, without intending to do so, um, they'll articulate many reasons for wanting to change their behavior, right? They'll kind of paint themselves into a verbal corner every time, whereby, you know, it makes it seem like they should stop being angry, stop being anxious. So they'll, they'll talk a lot about how anger, anxiety, or depression is uh, making them feel awful, how it's been going on for a really long time, how it's destroying their relationships, how it's affecting their performance at work, how it's spoiling their overall quality of life and maybe even damaging their health and interfering with their sleep. 
I, so the, the, you know, this goes on for an hour, like detailing the history of the problem, you know, the consequences of it. Um, but then the client reaches a point where if, they've just given themselves a whole bunch of reasons for wanting to do something about it, but they're stuck. So they'll say, um, but I can't, I know this is awful and I should really change it and do something about all this anger, depression, anxiety, but I can't help it. It's just how I feel. Like, and that's a way of expressing stuckness. I can't do anything about it. Why can't you do anything about it? Because it's just a feeling. You can't do anything about feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so this is your this is our excuse. It's our rationale for stuckness. And Albert Ellis, who's one of the pioneers of cognitive therapy, who was very influenced by the Stoics back in the 1950s, long time ago now, would lean forward and he would say, yeah, but it's not just how you feel, is it? It's also how you think mm-hmm. and that's the key turning point in any cognitive approach to psychotherapy because if it's your feelings it kind of seems like there's a limited amount you can do it, but it's natural to be angry people will say and uh but a cognitive therapist would say but if it's also how you think those thoughts might be false they might be inconsistent with one another mm-hmm. like there might be more constructive ways of interpreting the situation um, you know, what's the evidence for and against the thoughts that are making you angry? Like, how might someone else view the same situation? Ten years from now, looking back in the same situation, would you think about it in the same way? So these are what we call Socratic questions that we ask clients in therapy in order to do what we call cognitive restructuring. There's some jargon for you. It means to change the beliefs, like transform the beliefs. So first you identify what the beliefs are that are causing your distress, and then you question the evidence for them. And then you maybe even engage in behaviours that would help you to refute faulty, uh, irrational, or false, simply mistaken or false beliefs um, that maintain anger, anxiety, or depression. You might be angry with somebody because you believe that they've insulted you, right? Um, but it could be that you're completely mistaken about that. Maybe they didn't. Maybe you're mixing them up with someone else even. Like, so in some cases, there's obvious cases where we can have strong emotions that are just founded on completely false beliefs, right? And but more commonly, we have strong emotions that are based on selective thinking, right? So somebody says something and I get really, really angry about it. But I might, and, and it may be true that they insulted me, right? But I might be selectively ignoring the fact that I'd already insulted them multiple times before they did. Or I might be selectively ignoring the fact that although they insulted me, they've helped me many, many times in the past or helped other people that I care about. And that might not remove the fact that they insulted me, but it might moderate and balance out the intense emotions that I have towards them. We see this all the time on the internet. People engage in selective thinking, which is a kind of lie of omission in a way. You know, in core, at least in the UK, in other countries, you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The whole truth, not just a fragment of it. Because it's understood that telling a partial truth is a form of lying, the lie of omission. And that's the most form- common form of self-deception that people engage in psychologically in their relationships and in terms of their emotions. Like, it's often that they deceive themselves by leaving information out that would cr- be crucial in changing the, the appropriate emotional response to a situation. It's easy to see people doing that. Um, all the time and then it, or as we put it they jump on or seize upon uh, a fact and take it out of context 
Um, it's an easy way to deceive yourself. So I, anger is cured partly by identifying the underlying cognitions on which it's based, uh, questioning, first of all, whether sometimes they might just be false beliefs, uh, but some, more often they're taken out of context and or crucial information is left out that would change uh, the way we feel. And also the, the Stoics are just to realise that anger is a slippery slope. So in every case where somebody becomes angry and violent and do things that they regret, where anger, we can all agree, uh, in any case where we can all look at it and go, oh, yeah, that, that's a bad example of anger. Um, it's a case where anger was definitely harmful. It, it, it would have started off by somebody thinking that they were in control of their anger. Mm. Um, and anger easily spirals for several reasons. It naturally accelerates, um, it becomes less and less under our control as it grows. But the, the most dangerous thing about anger is it introduces cognitive biases, so it distorts our thinking. So when people are very angry, they engage in a form of confirmation bias. So they look for other things to get angry about. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like, but some when people are pissed off, like they go looking for things to get more pissed off about, right? That's confirmation bias, right? In relationships, they look for reasons to be angry with somebody that they've taken a dislike to, and they'll ignore things that, that, that might moderate their anger. Um, so it's one of the reasons that anger will tend to naturally spiral or escalate. We have to be very careful of that. But also anger is, the irony is people usually use anger as a form of motivation. So they will say, I have to, sometimes you have to get angry in order to motivate yourself. But that's false um, because there are many people who don't feel anger and manage to motivate themselves perfectly well. Thanks very much. And many of the big social changes that have happened through history have been motivated by people who weren't particularly angry, but they just felt that they loved their country or they loved their friends and wanted to protect them or do something good for their nation. It wasn't coming from a place of anger. Sometimes give us that you need to use anger in order to protect yourself. Sometimes it's natural to get angry if somebody's attacking you in order to protect yourself. I think that's terrible advice in many instances as well. Maybe there are exceptional cases where it's true, but it seems like a very strange example to me to give because it seems obvious to me that um, in many situations, people become more vulnerable by becoming angry for many reasons. One is we know when people are angry, they underestimate risk. And so in sports like boxing or martial arts, they're more likely to expose themselves to being hit or injured, um, or they take the risk of exhausting themselves in the early rounds of a fight. For example, Muhammad Ali, I use as a, an example, he deliberately provoked George Foreman because um, uh, he knew he couldn't control his temper and that he'd exhaust himself and throw wild punches. And Ali thought, I need to control my anger, be patient. His biggest weakness is his anger. Again, it's people think of anger as kind of being a strength sometimes. Ironically, it's the opposite. It's a weakness um, that can be exploited by your opponents. And the most obvious thing, I suppose, is that you know people will drop their guard when they're angry and expose themselves to danger. They also expose other people around them to greater danger the angrier they get. So it's not an effective way of protecting yourself or other people. The Stoics knew all of this, um, and they used similar kinds of examples. Marcus actually uses the example of a, a legion. And he says, uh, we punish legionaries who get scared and flee from the battlefield. He says, but we also 
punish legionaries who become enraged and break ranks to attack the enemy because that's equally a lack of discipline and it endangers the men on either side of them. Right? So he uses that very familiar, quite little. On the one hand, that's a literal problem that he faces as a general, but he also sees it as a metaphor for life. Um, that anxiety might we think of as a form of weakness, but anger is also a form of weakness and creates greater vulnerability uh, in, in life in general. Mm -hmm. The quote that I liked from your book was, no man does evil knowingly, which also entails that no man does it willingly. And I think this kind of helps to paint the picture of nobody's out to get you on purpose almost. That's kind of what I took out of it. And then another yeah. piece too that I've really been, uh, and I heard on another podcast that's helped me a lot is when somebody, I'm just trying to make it very tactical. When somebody is bothering you, or it seems like you know they're criticizing you, one way to kind of combat that is to simply say, oh, that's just Bill being Bill. And it kind of just doesn't allow you to take on some of that emotion. It's just, it's just them being them and life goes on. What are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on people going out of their way uh, from the quote on your book? Um, so that quote comes from Socrates originally. It's a very famous paradox of Socrates, which Marx Aurelius and other Stoics quoted. And it's a, it's a very challenging idea. No man does evil knowingly or, or therefore uh, willingly. So it's a radical concept and it would encourage us to greater empathy. It's going to be a concept that appeals to psychotherapists, coaches and counsellors or anyone who works in the so-called caring professions. S simply not because we're all kind of like touchy-feely and like bleeding hearts or whatever, but because we spend a lot of time talking to people about why they did things, right? So I spent years working with uh, youths on probation um, who had committed various crimes and sometimes done really horrible things. And sometimes I spoke to the victims as well. And, you know, what you learn if you sit for hours interviewing people who have committed crimes is, you, you know, you get to eavesdrop on their reasoning. Um, how, and, you know, they think people deserve things or more often that they believe that what they did was trivial, that it wasn't as serious, it wasn't as harmful as other people perceive it as being. So that's how they kind of excuse it. So there's kind of faulty thinking that underlies it. It's seldom the case that they recognise that something is genuinely wrong, but they do it anyway. Of course, they recognise that other people think it's wrong, but they don't right. believe that. They don't agree with them, right? Right. So it doesn't seem wrong to them. It seems trivial. Yeah, of course, everyone else thinks it's wrong to steal. But I don't think it, it doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Right. right? So they are not persuaded. Like, they're not convinced that it's wrong. In their mind, they've got a rationale for doing it. It seems like a small thing. And then it may be that they come to change their mind about that over time, perhaps in some cases. Um, so I think that's in part what Socrates meant. I, I talked about that at a talk that I gave. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to work with many different groups of people and uh, very, very different groups of people. I've worked with uh, several police forces, um, different branches of the military, and I was lucky enough um, just over a year ago to go to Quantico and speak at the Marine Corps Academy, uh, Marine Corps University, sorry. And uh, I spoke to the, the officers there and uh, I spoke about this example from Socrates. And so I knew it would seem controversial, but I also knew that if I then pointed out that even the worst dictators in history 
uh, people commit genocide and, you know, like the Hitlers and Stalins and so on, totally believed that what they were doing was justified and were righteous about it. And if anything, were more convinced than uh, most uh, people uh, ordinarily are of their moral values and beliefs, that most people will recognise that that's true, right? The problem with Stalin and, and Hitler was that they really, really believed that what they were doing was right. You know, that's what made them particularly dangerous, right? So there's a cognitive problem there. They're, they're mistaken. Their moral values are incoherent, illogical, I, arguably, um, and flawed. And, you know, all, often they're contradictory. Socrates thought uh, that uh, the most important technique that we can employ is to examine our beliefs for contradictions. We call this the Alenkis. It's the Socratic method, of, the Socratic method of questioning. Is it, 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 the Alenkis is the term that was used in ancient Greece to describe cross-examining a witness in court, right? So you have a witness and they give testimony um, and then they're questioned and contradictions are exposed maybe in their testimony. And uh, Socrates thought we should take this me method and apply it to our own moral values because often we, we have contradictory beliefs. And uh, he also explicitly said that it was a therapeutic method. He said it's like a kind of medicine for the, the mind. It uh, doesn't involve drugs, but it involves talking instead. And what it cures us of, he says, is a type of conceit that comes from believing that we know uh, some of the most important things in life when, in fact, we do not know them. Um, so believing that we know what's just when, in fact, we don't really know that, and we maybe hold contradictory beliefs about it. Um, and so Socrates thought we should learn to be more flexible and more open-minded by spotting uh, the flaws and contradictions in some of our most firmly held and, and fundamental moral values, and that this was a very healthy uh, thing to engage in. Um, and I think it, you know, that's the inspiration for modern cognitive therapy today. Uh, cognitive therapy is inspired by the Socratic tradition that involves self-questioning and moral self-examination. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about anxiety and we touched on it a little bit. I think now, and maybe just be the circle that I'm in or the part I'm in in my life, but it seems like anxiety is more prevalent now than it yeah. really ever has been. What would this stoic, Yeah, it is. And in being in your position, I'm sure you see this all the time. Yeah. You're kind of being a real psychotherapist. Talk to them about anxiety, your thoughts on it. And then also what would Marcus Aurelius say about anxiety? Anxiety is trendy. I, it's difficult to measure the prevalence of psychological problems, um, but anecdotally, subjectively, for what it's worth, um, it does also seem to me that particularly younger people exhibit more symptoms, particularly symptoms of social anxiety. Yep. Now, my specialism is in treating social anxiety as a therapist, okay. anxiety disorders in general. Um, and so it's a fascinating subject. It's one of those areas when you know a lot about any subject, you, it's difficult to avoid coming out with this cliche yeah. where you, you say there's stuff that we should be teaching kids in school. Why aren't we teaching this to kids in school? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you, anyone that's passionate about any subject will, will tell, you, tell you about that, right? So with, with anxiety, I, I, that's my hobby horse. There's things about it that I think are so well established and so basic, and yet nobody seems to know them. Right. And every, every client that walks in the doors as a therapist, you feel I'm kind of giving them the same spiel because, like, they, at least to begin with, there's a huge gap in their knowledge about the basic way in which human emotions function. And although psychology 
and sometimes seems like a free for all. Like you know, that people argue uh, about different psychological theories. Um, I think that's misleading because there are aspects of psychology that are very well established. There are things we know about anxiety that we've known for well over half a century now, in which psychologists have kind of are beyond arguing about because they, they're, they're so clearly um, robustly established. So I, I'll happily explain one of them because uh, almost every client with anxiety, I'd have to explain, have somebody who's got an animal phobia, which is every researcher's favourite example of a type of anxiety. Anxiety comes in many different flavours. They function differently, respond differently to treatments, but animal phobia is pretty basic. So someone has got a cat phobia, snake phobia, whatever, and you take that person, and it's, it's a severe phobia, and you put them in a room with some cats, right? Um, now, heart rate is not a perfect measure of anxiety, but it's actually pretty good. Like, it's an easy thing to measure as well. Like, and it's, it's turned out it's a pretty reliable measure of anxiety. So what's going to happen to somebody's heart rate if, you, if they have a severe cat phobia and you put them in a room with a couple of cats? probably going to go up right absolutely so specifically it'll, it'll probably almost double within very short space of time less than five seconds um so it would be about the level as if they were like i don't know like sprinting really hard or something um would be equivalent to how much their, their heart rate would shut up by and so most people with anxiety will go okay yeah like you know i could have guessed that that's sort of obvious and then but the, the interesting question real real interesting question you know the, the big magic question is what happens next? What happens next, buddy? Like, and then most phobic clients will just look at you kind of a bit confused. And it's a strange confusion. It's a kind of apparea. It's a Socratic confusion. Because they know the answer, but they're kind of reluctant to say it. Because they know that what goes up must come down. So eventually the heart rate is going to come back down, right? You know, it's very rare that they say, I guess it's just going to keep going up until your heart explodes or something. No, obviously right. not. Eventually, your heart rate shoots up. It's going to come back down again, right? So, but they look a bit confused, but I guess it would have to come back. Already, they know that this creates problems for the symptomatology, right? Uh, and it's already, it's pretty clear already what the solution to their phobia is, right? So I guess it'd have to come down eventually, but I don't know how long that would take. Well, for a severe phobia, it might take, it varies quite a lot, actually, but under controlled conditions, it might be like 20 or 30 minutes or something, roughly. could be an hour, could be five minutes, varies, but, you know, 20, 30 minutes, something like that would be unusual. Um, so what happens if that person then goes home, like their anxiety is kind of gradually abated, come back the next day, you put them in a room with cats again, the heart rate's going to go up, but it's not going to go up as high as before, and it's probably going to reduce more quickly. Day three, like you bring them in, put them in the room with the cats, the heart rate now is going to go up, but less than it did on day two, and it's going to reduce more quickly. So you get this kind of zigzag uh, that progressively declines towards the extinction of the phobic response. Um, and the interesting thing about phobias is there's a very low relapse rate. So there's high relapse rates for things like alcohol addiction and stuff like that, but there's a low relapse rate for phobia. Once somebody overcomes a phobia for cats, it's, it's normally permanently gone, pretty more or less, right? So this is what we call emotional habituation is the technical term for it. It's the simple fact that anxiety will abate naturally through repeated exposure under controlled conditions. And we know there are a couple of things that can prevent that from happening. The main thing that prevents it happening is escape behavior, which means somebody just runs out of the room. 
right? That, that'll stop the habituation happening. But that's what people have a... So you might say, well, how come this hasn't happened to you already? Like, how come right. you've not already just got used to it? Because normally, because anxiety is painful and we usually run away from it. Under normal circumstances, and when would this ever happen? Like, because anxiety is scary. People run away from things that are scary. But under what circumstances would they not do that? Like, well, a couple of... The, one, if they're desperate. Like, so say it was an animal and it's in the woods, goes to its source of food and a tree falls down and it scares it so it runs away. Next day it goes back and it's nervous because the tree fell down yesterday. It freaked it out. But it really wants those nuts, right? So gradually it's going to kind of like persevere. And then day two, day three, it's anxiety will wear off. And actually if anxiety didn't wear off naturally through repeated exposure, it would be very, uh, it wouldn't be very adaptive. Like animals have to get over anxiety where there's no genuine danger in order to adapt properly to the environment. Is that little furry creature never going to go to where the nuts are again just as a tree fell down once? Like, no, it's going to keep tentatively going back and if nothing bad happens, the anxiety will wear off, then it gets its nuts again, right? It survives. has to do that. Um, so if we're really desperate to get some goal, we might expose it. But what's more common is that our parents encourage us to face our fears. Or they don't. Like, so one of the main reasons that a child would overcome a dog phobia or a cat phobia is that their parents encourage them to remain in the situation mm-hmm. and they say, it'll be fine. Like, it won't harm you. Like, and gradually, the presence of another person approaching them, the child will remain in the situation and anxiety will wear off through repeated prolonged exposure under controlled uh, situation under the guidance of uh, uh, another trusted individual or if the parents haven't done that then they go and pay a therapist to do it then that gets more expensive <laughs> I, you know you can chat you can sue your parents for that you can say this cost me a thousand bucks because you didn't do it when it's five <laughs> uh, you should foot the bill but in a, in a way the therapist is doing something maybe that the parents had failed to do or i guess your friends might do it but that's what normally Happens. That's how anxiety works. We don't teach that to kids. We should explain to kids like, when they're small, the anxiety, your heart rate will go up, but it doesn't stay up. Like It will gradually go down if you remain in the situation. You learn to get used to it. Like, but if you do what you feel like doing, which is run away, if the situation is not actually dangerous, you'll always be scared of it. Like, your anxiety will be maintained or it might even increase and become more sensitive to it. And uh, if you overcome anxiety in one situation, there's something that we call uh, generalization of improvement. Um, so you, you become potentially more confident in general. Say you overcome your fear of spiders and you overcome your fear of snakes and you overcome your fear of cats. You might start to think, maybe I could overcome anxiety in any situation mm-hmm. as long as I handle it in a similar way. And then, my friend, coping strategies for dealing with anxiety across a wide range of situations. Mm-hmm. The, the quote I pulled from, from your book for this part was, uh, if this will seem trivial to me 20 years from now, then why shouldn't I view it as trivial today instead of worrying about it as a catastrophe? And I think what happens down is people spend a lot of time in their thoughts and making things mm-hmm. bigger than what they have to be. And I know there's a lot of stoic uh, readings just about like playing things out in your mind. And if it doesn't matter in five years, why does it matter now? But I think I think that's what's prevalent today. People are overthinking and spending too much time making something bigger than it is. Where does your mind go when you think about that? Yeah, we've all turned into drama queens. I, I think we, we watch too much TV. 
Mm. And it's turned us into... So that may sound like an odd thing to say. And I guess as I get older, you know, I, I kind of arrive at much simpler conclusions. Psychotherapy is a complex art. And there are many different models. But like, anyway, you do, do it for a long time. You start to think, there's some basic stuff, though. Like, that people find controversial again. It was when it was first said, Socrates says in Plato's Republic, that the Greek tragedies, which are, I guess, like the ancient equivalent of video games or movies or whatever, like the Greek tragedies are precursors from modern horror films and stuff, right? Like they're, they're really tragic, right? It's like horrific things happen. They're really exciting, really cool. Um, they're great, great works of art, but they provide terrible role models. Like, and Socrates and the Stoics would say, we kind of admire, Plato wanted to just burn them all. The Stoics thought, no, no, we might keep them, but view them as case studies in psychopathology. The, the heroes in these tragedies are messed up people. Like, they, they're, they're not resilient. Like, they cope really badly with, uh, with adversity. Um, and so, you know, they, uh, they catastrophize everything, right, um, for dramatic effect. Right, so Oedipus sleeps with his own mother, but he doesn't know who she is. Right, he doesn't know it's his mother. He falls in love with this woman, and he sleeps with her. And then only afterwards he finds out that because he was abandoned as an infant, he finds out. Oh, this turns out this is your mother, and he's so mortified with this he goes insane and gouges his own eyes out. Right, and the Stoics would say, well, someone else in the same situation might have said, oh man, that's pretty weird, but I had no idea. Like, and they would process it, parse it differently. Um, but it would be a, then a very banal story, right? What makes it a tragedy really interesting is the tragic way that he responds to uh, the news. And it's the same in many Greek tragedies. People massively overreact by catastrophizing things that someone else could have viewed in a more moderate and less tragic way. So, you know, the problem with that is that if we start to emulate the behaviour of tragic figures, uh, we literally, we become drama queens, right? We start to do things that dramatists had exaggerated for dramatic effect and treat that as if not. We, we use the same language, overblown rhetoric, to describe problems uh, as catastrophes to other people. Flames, like, I felt like I was going to just shrivel up and die, you know, to describe somebody disagreeing with something that we said in a meeting, right? Something kind of banal, really, but we make it sound much worse. Like, we're almost like we're writing a Greek tragedy. We want, you know, like people to uh, sympathize with us and stuff. And that's all good fun and games until we start doing it in our own head and telling ourselves that someone shot us down in flames and it felt like it was the end of the world. And, and most psychopathology is characterized by people using language that's pretty colorful. Um, you know, uh, People, when they're really upset, do not describe events to themselves using objective uh, language that's, you know, very fact-based. Like, they use highly emotive, uh, rhetorical, embellished, exaggerated, hyperbole um, to get the point across. Uh, and, and that maintains their own distress, right? So, um, you know, I, I think uh, we have to learn to be more mindful of the, the language that we use mm -hmm. and what we're picking up from other people. And so I think one of the reasons that people are more anxious today is that they've become 
um, acclimatized to dramatic language and exaggeration um, about events that other people would have in the past viewed more stoically. Um, I mean, we inhabit a world of fiction, right? Like nowadays, people are, are far more exposed to stories than they're, you know, in the past, sit around a campfire and tell stories. Now people are on the internet all day long, like listening to story fiction, right? Like movie trailers, like the news, like in a sense, is just all, might as well be fiction. Like it's, you know, it's full of distorted, exaggerated, one-sided accounts of things. We listen to stories all day long. The internet's a big machine for pumping your brain full of stories that are only interesting right. because they're overly dramatized. Right. You know, they're highly emotive. And if they weren't, you would change the channel. Like you'd go and look at something else. So I, I scroll down occasionally the headlines for the videos for CNN and Fox and just look at the titles of the videos. And there are things like Don Lemon aghast at some banal event. You know, Tucker Carlson can't believe, you know, horrified, the horrifying truth. Like, they're full of value judgments. Like, they're full of catastrophizing. Like, in order to make you think you have to pay more attention, you know, they, they hijack your attention by making uh, things seem highly emotive. And to do that, they give you very biased one-sided accounts of it. So it's kind of like a race to the bottom that we're engaged in. Like psychologically and in terms of our emotional maturity. But, you know, these things always happen in pendulum swings. I think eventually everyone's going to get fed up with it, I hope. Mm -hmm. like, and people already start to question the way that the media is kind of manipulating them emotionally and they start to maybe be smart enough to see through it and, you know, become a, a little bit more detached from it. And that's why stoicism, you know, flourishes during periods in which our culture becomes more toxic because people get fed up with all the brainwashing that's going on and they start to look for some more rational, more philosophical way of, you know, cutting through all the crap and, and you know, becoming more resilient and seeing things more objectively. Right. Something else I think is interesting with stoicism, and I think it parlays over into kind of my industry is the fitness industry is the idea of tolerating pain. And you talked about mm -hmm. this a little bit in your book. And I think uh, a lot of, you know, we've experienced, you know, pain in, in when we're working out in sort of a, a muscle burning sensation, not necessarily like the pain that maybe these people were experiencing, but the quote that a uh, couple quotes I pulled out was pain and discomfort can become advantageous in life if they provide opportunities for us to develop our strengths. And then the other part that was interesting, I thought you said was the fear of pain does more harm than pain itself. Talk to me about what is Stoics, how do Stoics view pain and how can we learn from them in 2021? Well, the Cynics were a school of philosophers that predated the Stoics and they introduced this idea of voluntary hardship. So they believed that paradoxically, if you want to develop, if, if you want to be happy and healthy and flourish, you need to have strength of character. You've got to have self-discipline and patience and courage and endurance and these kind of uh, strong character traits if you want to have a happy, you know, flourishing, fulfilled life. But those don't come from nowhere. Like in order to develop patience and self-discipline, you need to expose yourself to painful and unpleasant and exhausting experiences. But you do it in a controlled way, like as a form of exercise. Like, so you, you have to voluntarily endure hardship, they thought, 
in order, you know, in the same way that you train your, physically you train your body, like if you never use your body, it's going to become weak and unhealthy. Like in order for your body to be fit and strong so that it can endure um, strain, illness, physical exertion um, in a crisis unexpectedly, you need to subject it to at least a moderate amount of strain, exercise um, as a form of training. Like, and uh, we take that for granted. That's how physical health works. But your, your mental health, emotional health are basically the same. And there's a lot of overlap between the two. As you said, you know, physical exercise isn't just a physical thing. It's a psychological thing. Um, the psychology of it's essential. Like, it's tiring doing exercise. Like, you know, but in order to just, if you're lifting weights or something, to kind of just do one more uh, rep when you're really exhausted, you, you kind of reach a decision point about, you know, do I stop now because I'm exhausted and it's becoming really hard. It's becoming, it's getting real hard now. I don't know if I can do one more. Like, so did you give up at that point? Or is there something in you that motivates you to just push yourself a little bit further? And that's probably where you get most of the benefit from that, you know, that, that last exertion that you make, if you can do that consistently and just push yourself a, a little bit further when you're exercising, you know? Uh, if you did the opposite and just gave up whenever you started to feel like a little bit of discomfort, a little bit tired, you you get minimal benefit from most forms of exercise anyway but you so you're developing endurance and you're developing self-discipline these kind of psychological traits as, as well as physical fitness and the stoics thought we need to exercise our minds in, in other ways um that we need to learn to uh tolerate uh you know for example being insulted by other people um diogenes the cynic would do physical exercise but they they said that he jokingly he would go around and do things to provoke other people. So he got used to them disagreeing with him or insulting him. Um, and the, you know some of these stories are meant to be humorous. They come from satires in the ancient world. We're told that he went to the local authority and asked them to erect a statue in honor of him. And people thought there's no chance that they're going to do that. He said, "Why did you do that?" Because I just wanted to kind of practice being you know people tell me to go and get stuffed and. You know, like insulting me and laughing at me yeah. and things. Like, you know, so I don't, it's, it's like water off a duck's back to me now, you know. Like, um, so I, but I think we can do that in another way. You know, people, many people have got, in social anxiety in particular, um, part of it arguably is a, a kind of fear of criticism, fear of negative evaluation. But one thing, uh, that will inoculate you against that is if you willingly expose yourself to criticism. Actually, it's easy. It's really easy to do that these days, right? So, I mean, writing a book or doing anything in public, you'll get praised for it, but there's also going to be, there's always going to be people who say like horrible, mean like things uh, about you. I see actors that say they don't read their reviews. That seems to me like, in, not in all cases, maybe sometimes that works for people, but that seems like a kind of avoidance strategy to me. And I think it'd be better to read your bad reviews. So after a while, you get used to reading them and you learn how to cope with them and how to put them in perspective, you know. And I think really to be more resilient, ultimately, you know, you'd have to face criticism. Um, you don't have to go out and do stupid things like Diogenes the Cynic to provoke it, although you might. You know, all you have to do is expose yourself to a sufficient amount of feedback if you get 100 book reviews from people, and even if your book's quite good, there's going to be at least one person that thinks it's garbage. 
<laughs> right? It says like horrible things about it. So, you know, you can practice in that way. Getting an, enough feedback. When I trained therapists, I used to think one of the main things that they did was avoid getting feedback. And I'd encourage them just to elicit as much feedback as possible. You know, some of it's going to be negative, but you need to get used to that. You need to inoculate yourself against it. Asking people for feedback. When you give a talk or presentation, get everybody to fill out a form afterwards and rate your performance out of 10 and, and write what they thought the strengths. And, and in a way, another way to elicit negative feedback, incidentally, is to ask people, what would you think were the strengths and weaknesses of the presentation that I gave? And then even if they liked it and gave you 10 out of 10, you're, you're asking them you know, to make an effort to identify weaknesses if they had to think of some. And so, you know, there's ways that you can squeeze out more criticism even from a, a positive audience and that can help you to learn from it and inoculate yourself against feeling upset about it. But I feel that we do live in a culture now, um, maybe this is true in the past, but it's certainly anecdotally, it kind of feels like there are a lot of people who aren't used to getting criticised and, and I know it's the difference in different countries as well uh, to uh, the way that people respond to, to negative feedback. Um, I think culturally in Britain, it's more common to give negative feedback than it is in Canada, it seems to me. Yeah. And I think in, ass, in, in essence, too, like at the base layer, I think, isn't that what stoicism is, is being able to control how you respond, not not necessarily control what's happening around you, but control your response to what's happening around you? Yeah. Um, and to identify what's under your control and what isn't in any given situation, like, you know, spoiler alert, what's under your control isn't very, isn't very much. Like, it's, it's mainly... happening to you you might be able to influence it but uh, there's the only thing that's 100 directly under control is your own will and your volition and the mm-hmm. stuff that you say you think you do but the irony is that people invest a lot of effort in trying to control things that aren't under their control <laughs> yeah and then they neglect to take responsibility for things that are actually under voluntary control. Uh, uh, let me do a quick we'll do a little deep dive into something just for the hell of it it's one of my favorite ones because we talked about anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, and even people who have read the Stoic books often don't apply what we call the dichotomy of control, which is what we're talking about, this distinction between what's under your control and what isn't. I also call it the Stoic fork. We call it a fork in philosophy when you think of something as, as having two sides, two, uh, the two, being two ways of classifying something. Under your control, not under your control. Um, and sometimes people say there are things that are partially under your control. Yeah, but things that are partially under your control, that means there are parts of them that aren't under your control, parts of them that are under your control. So you can point. still apply well, this dichotomy right. to them, right? Yeah. So that's just another way of parsing them. Um, so I'll give you a specific example, a bit, a bit of a deep dive example, but I think it's relevant to many people. In the treatment of anxiety, People who worry pathologically have a condition called generalized anxiety disorder. But everybody worries about stuff to some extent, but subclinical, right? normal worry. And uh, in worrying, um, when people worry, they feel anxious. They'll try to kind of suppress or avoid the unpleasant feelings um, by distracting themselves from them by drinking alcohol, taking drugs, watching TV, um, sleeping. Um, and these are all strategies 
that they use to try and control their unpleasant feelings, but they're mainly avoidance strategies. They're ways of kind of trying to escape from the feelings. It doesn't really resolve the underlying feeling properly, though. So they're kind of struggling. Their attempts to try and control something that isn't actually directly under your control, the discomfort, the unpleasant sensation of anxiety. And often those attempts to control feelings of anxiety backfire. Um, so I, it seems to me that people that use drugs to cope with anxiety typically in the long run end up being far more anxious than they were to begin with. Mm-hmm. I, as incidentally, in, in certain places where cannabis use has become much more prevalent, uh, social anxiety become far more prevalent as well. I think it's partly because of there are increasing number of people who abuse cannabis. And by that, I mean people who smoke all day long, mm-hmm. every day. For instance, I don't mean people are just kind of using it casually. And the same would go with alcohol. People who drink a bottle of whiskey every day or something. And people who abuse these drugs, uh, it's clear to me that they're more anxious than, than people who don't use them. And yet if you said, like, why do you smoke so much weed? Why do you drink so much alcohol? They say, because it helps me to cope with my anxiety. That's how delusional they are. Why anyone else looking at them would think, you look pretty anxious to me, buddy. Why it doesn't seem like it's working. It seems like maybe it's making you worse. Yeah. Like, it's pretty toxic when you're convinced that the only thing you can do to help yourself is something that everybody else can see is actually making you worse. That's a pretty messed up uh, strategy to, to employ. So in, in pathological worrying, people use these avoidance strategies to try and control involuntary aspects of the emotional response, and it backfires. It usually makes them worse. It doesn't really help them. But what they, they then do is also neglect to take ownership or responsibility for aspects of worrying that are voluntary. And so we in therapy, if you say to clients, how much control do you have over your worrying um, as a cognitive process, like the, the stuff you say to yourself when you're worrying? And most clients in therapy will say they have zero control. They don't believe that they have control. They talk about their worrying as being out of control or uncontrollable. Um, now, this might surprise many people, therefore, but one of the premises of modern co- evidence-based cognitive therapy for treating GAD, or pathological worrying, is that they're wrong about that. Like, and that actually the cognitive process of worrying is voluntary. And here are some, I would say, obvious clues to that. So involuntary psychological processes are usually fast. Like they're usually kind of fleeting and kind of spontaneous. So if a thought pops in my head, like, I can't unthink it. Like, so it's already, I've already had that thought, an image has already popped in my head. Um, that's an automatic thought, it happens spontaneously. But worrying happens as a sequence of events over time. Mm-hmm. It has all the markers of being a voluntary, what we call strategic, high-level cognitive process. And it has all the markers of something that could potentially be interrupted. Because it's a sequence, you have a conversation with yourself when you're worrying, you could derail that. You could change the way you respond to it. Like You could even step to one side and view the conversation from a different perspective psychologically. There are a bunch of things you can do to interrupt it because it's a sequence. It's like a domino a series of dominoes. You can stop it. Like you can't stop random automatic thoughts popping up all over the place because it's not like a chain that you could break. But worrying is a chain. Like, it's usually characterized by, um, technically, um, uh, an exaggerated appraisal of the probability and severity of threat uh, and an underestimate of coping ability structurally. Right? 
So what that looks like in plain English is people say, what if something catastrophic happens? Like, I won't be able to cope with it. I won't know what to do. I won't be able to deal with it. So they have this conversation in their head where they pose questions that are unanswerable. What if this happens? What if that happens? Like, assuming that something really awful is probably going to happen. And then they will have a conversation about how they don't know or aren't capable of coping with it. I don't know what I'll do. How would I cope with it? Like, they ask these questions that they don't answer. And it goes round and round and round and round and round and round in circles. And they can't get to sleep at night. They're worrying and worrying and worrying. And then all the time they're making themselves more anxious as a result. And they'll tell you that's involuntary. But it's not. It's a voluntary behaviour. It's unusual in therapy we, uh, that we point to something like that and say, that, that's actually something you're doing intentionally, although you don't realise that you are. And so we can train people to take more voluntary control over their, uh, the, the process of worrying. So here's an example inside their own head of a failure to clearly distinguish between the aspects of the anxiety that are not under the control and the aspects that are under the control. They are trying to struggle with the involuntary aspects, and that's just backfiring. And they're neglecting to take control over right. the voluntary aspects and just allowing right. that to run wild. Yeah, they've got it completely back to front, usually. Um, so this is an app situation. You could ask yourself, what bits of this are under my control? What bits of it aren't? And then it follows that you should probably spend more time and effort taking responsibility for the bits that are under your control and, uh, and learn to be more detached about the aspects that aren't under your control, accepting the, the fact that sometimes they're going to go against your wishes. Easier said than done. Yeah, I mean, if we could all do that, the world would be. But you know, and and as I get older, I find myself saying this morning. It sounds like a strange thing to say. If we all did that, yeah, it sounds like it'd be kind of cool. I yeah, honestly believe. I, I think we'd all die of boredom, though. My <laughs> and the Stoics say that as well. They say, look, you know, the wise man accepts that the we're all fools, by and we'll lack self-discipline. And we're all cowards. Like the, the wise man accepts that we're all fallible. Um, the wise man accepts actually that we're all unwise, you know, and he expects other people to be fallible. And in a way, you know, he has a strange paradoxical attitude towards it. Because, like, I, I was kind of half joking. I said, you know, life would be kind of dull, like, if it wasn't for the fact that there are cowardly, deceitful. Um, you know, annoying people out there. Like it's hard to see it that way. Yeah. But the Stoics said, think of life as being like a wrestling match. They all wrestled um, in the ancient world for various reasons. Culturally, the Greeks and Romans, um, it was the the norm for all, pretty much all young men to uh, do boxing and wrestling and pancratian. And, and other quite physical sports like hunting boar uh, from horseback and things that were really, like, actually more dangerous, more physical in some ways than the, the martial arts. Um, and uh, they said you should view life like this. You know, like when you're wrestling, you, you wouldn't want to just fight people that you can beat all the time. Like, I mean, if that might be cool. You might have just one, like, you know, like uh, again and again and again. And after a while, you think it's just kind of boring, though. It's not really, there's no challenge to it. And the Stoics think life is like that. You know, we need to seek out. They thought one of the tricks in life is seeking out challenges that are just the right level. They're neither too easy nor overwhelming. 
And the Stoics said that, that what's difficult about life is nobody can really tell you, like in general terms, like what what challenges you should seek out. Epictetus tells his students the only way you would know the answer to that question is by observing your own past experience. So you would fight lots of people sparring and you'd think, this guy always beats me mm. and I always beat this guy. And then these other guys are kind of like somewhere in between. And so you'd learn from your experience who would be a good match for you in terms of sparring practice, right? And who's too easy and who's too difficult. Um, and Epictetus says there's not like a general purpose answer like, to that that's going to fit everybody. You, you know, the hard truth about it is you have to study yourself, number one, and you'd have to test yourself out through trial and error and observe the consequences. And then you'll figure out which challenges are too easy for you in life and which ones might be too much, might be overwhelming for you. And if you want to grow as an individual, it makes sense to seek out challenges that are somewhere in between the, you know, allow you to develop patience and endurance and courage. Um, right. And wisdom would consist in moderation in that regard. I like the uh, part of the thought of that it's voluntary and to go out and seek it yourself. I think that's a different, Donald, I think that's a different perspective than I'll just deal with adversity when it comes my way. There's very, it's very much a proactive versus reactive kind of way of, of going about it. There's a famous story. The founder of Stoicism was a guy called Zeno, and he was a, a wealthy man. He traded. Uh, Tyrian purple dye, which is this very precious commodity in the ancient world. Like, um, I don't know, it's kind of like it's the ancient Greek equivalent of bitcoins or something like that. Like, yeah. he was a, this was, he, he, was a, he was a very wealthy man as a result of trading this kind of precious commodity. And he, but it was uh, shipped and his ship sank in a storm. And so, like, everything just, the dye just dissolved in the water. It's gone for good, buddy. Like, you know, it's just what soluble. Like it's, it's in the ocean now, it's gone. And Zeno said that the most profitable trip that he ever made was the one where he lost his entire fortune, paradoxically. So Greek philosophers love paradoxes, right? Yeah. They said, yeah, the, one, the most profitable one was the one where I lost everything because that forced me to kind of have this kind of midlife crisis and, and start again from scratch and become a philosopher and start, you know, like really uh, pursuing wisdom rather than just kind of pursuing wealth. But at first he wasn't sure what to do, and he sat down at a bookseller's stall in Athens, just kind of distraught. He'd lost everything. And uh, he picked up a book and he read it, and we're told uh, he read book two of Xenophon's Memorabilia Socrates. And so this is a book written by a Rome, an Athenian uh, general called Xenophon, who was a best buddy of Socrates. And uh, it's memorabilia. It's just like, this is everything I remember Socrates said. Uh, we have this book still today. Uh, one of the most famous speeches ever written. And it was a speech given by a sophist called Prodicus, with whom Socrates was friends. And Socrates paraphrases it, and Xenophon writes it down, and then Zeno reads it. So Zeno's getting this like third-hand version mm-hmm. of a, a speech that was really famous. And today we call the speech the choice of Hercules. And the story goes that Hercules, when he was a young man, was lost in a forest. And there, were, uh, there was a fork in the road, there were two paths in front of him, in a dichotomy. And so he sat down and scratched his head. He couldn't really figure out which path to go down. And then these two tall women appeared, which in, in, in Greek symbolism uh, it, it indicated that they were goddesses. And 
So he starts, one, the first one pushes her way to the front. And she says, my name is Yuda Minea, like happiness, fulfillment. She's lying, right? And uh, she says, come follow my path. And she says, you'll have everything you ever wanted. Uh, you, you'll, have all, you'll be able to have your pick of lovers. You'll eat the finest foods. You'll lie in beautiful, soft beds and luxury. And it'll all come to you, she says, through the labor of other men. You'll live like a king. Please, if you follow my path. Right. Mm -hmm. So she uh, pitches us a yitam. And then eventually the other woman comes forward. Her name is uh, Arati or Virtue. Um, and she says, uh, I won't lie to you. She said, uh, anyone will tell you um, that there are two paths in life and one is easy and one is difficult. And, uh, you know, nothing truly valuable in life, she says, comes easily. And she says, if you follow my path, it's going to be really tough. People are going to persecute you and ridicule you. You'll be cast out from society. You'll have to face one adversity after another. You have to do the 12 labors. The last one is you'll have to go down to Hades itself and wrestle with Cerberus like, uh, and uh, capture him barehanded and take him back up to the, the world. And she says, it's going to be really tough. Like, people will persecute you, you live in poverty, you'll be homeless. Um, but you'll have something that this other woman can never offer you, which is that you'll be able to look back on your own life with a sense of pride mm. in, your, in your achievements. And so Hercules thinks about this and he chooses the path of arity. Like, ironically, even though it's, she chooses the to undertake the 12 labors voluntarily, he chooses voluntary hardship. Because he's persuaded that if he took the life of luxury, it wouldn't be a life worth living. Like he'd never be able to admire himself or be have any pride in himself. Um, and ironically, although the other path is much tougher, it's really pretty severe. Like he become a hero. Uh, Epictetus says to his students, "If Hercules had lain in bed and never done anything, he wouldn't even be worthy of the name Hercules." No one would remember him. No one would give right. a shit about him. Right. Like, I remember that famous guy who just lay in bed all the time and waited <laughs> on liberal. Oh, that dude, yeah. Like, although today he'd he'd be he'd be into he'd be uh, Instagram famous, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, so <laughs> it's different today, I guess. Like, um, but they said the reason you guys admire people like Epictetus says to students, you, who who are the people that you really genuinely admire? And like most of them, if you stop to think about it, are people that have faced adversity. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you admire them is because they faced adversity and they overcame it. And yet, in a contradictory manner, you guys, left to your own advices, like, would do anything within your power to avoid having to face right. hardship or adversity. Uh -huh. Don't you think there's a contradiction there? Like all the people you admire are the ones that were ridiculed and persecuted, like that endured physical, like material hardship, and yet they survived and they got through it. And yet you would much rather pursue an easy life. And you're lining yourself up for a kind mm -hmm. of moral failure where you can't even look in the mirror wow. by, and have any kind of respect or, mm -hmm. or pride in yourself. You've been duped in a way. Uh, by the prevailing values of your society into thinking like that satisfaction comes from hedonism and fame and celebrity status and all this kind of stuff, when actually deep down you really know that it doesn't. Um, the question they like to ask is, Socrates, who was relatively poor, 
and was ridiculed publicly in Athens um, by the, the, the satirists and was persecuted and hated by some politicians and executed, um, was nevertheless a, a hero to, for centuries and centuries to philosophers. And people like Epictetus would say to their students, do you think Socrates' life would have been made better if we gave him more money? Would his life have been better if he had more friends? Because you guys act as if having as much money and as many friends as possible is like the goal of life. Mm-hmm. And yet the people that you admire didn't have a lot of money and didn't have a lot of friends. And that's part of why you admire them in a way, because they managed to flourish anyway, despite these handicaps, these setbacks in life. You know, like, do you honestly think your whole life is about getting more money and getting more friends and getting more luxury? Like, would Socrates' life have been made better? Like, if he lived, a, if he slept on a softer bed, mm-hmm. like, and, and ate sushi, like, and drank latte, and, you know, all that, all this kind of stuff that you guys seem to think is important. If he had the internet, you know, like if you got if you watch if you got to watch uh, the latest Marvel movies on Netflix and a, a really big TV, like would that have improved Socrates' life significantly, or or would that maybe even like have prevented him from mm-hmm. being able to exercise self discipline and courage and integrity and wisdom and right. all that kind of stuff? And so, just like choosing a sparring partner, the, the Stoics say you have to voluntarily embrace hardship. If you want to develop strength, I hate to break it to you, my enough people, like, and that's why Hercules, like, was smart enough, like, to choose the twelve labels, like, even though it's the sort of thing that most. Oh, I lost you for a second. Hold on. Okay, we're back. Okay. Out for a um, yep. Uh, that I was just about to say. I think that right there is just so profound in it and if people can take anything out of the conversation i think that is number one it's vice versus virtue to me and i think that um i'm just glad you you're able to spell that out for us i think that's a really profound um lesson for everybody and i i was going to stop there but i i really wanted to touch on one more subject if you have time donald and i I underlined it uh Uh in the book and you talked about the difference between stoicism with a capital s and stoicism with a lower with a lowercase yeah. s. Can you talk to us a little about that as we kind of close up? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, the a lot of the things that people say and write on the internet, I think when, early on when people were talking about stoicism, it, it was better in some ways because it, it was more of a nerdy niche subject. So the people talking about it had read the books. And then what happens when a subject becomes trendy, it's great. I love the fact that stoicism became very popular and trendy. But you see more and more articles appearing by people who haven't actually read any books and don't know jack about the subject. Mm-hmm. Right? But it doesn't stop them writing about it. Sometimes that's journalists, right? For instance, they think, well, this thing's partly quite trendy. I better write an article about it, even though I've never cracked open a book on it. doesn't stop them, right? So you get more articles appearing by people who don't understand what the word even means. So they, we use stoicism with a lowercase s today to mean uh, having a stiff upper lip. Or technically, uh, it's a character trait or coping style that involves re- suppressing or concealing unpleasant or embarrassing emotions, basically. Right? Having stiff upper lip, you can say so kind of concealing your feelings kind of from others or from yourself. And that's not what capitalist stoicism means. They're two different things. 
And this is true of the names of many ancient schools of philosophy. So sophistry with a capital S or lowercase s means something slightly different. Skepticism, cynicism, Epicureanism, like uh, all, all of these terms from antiquity, the modern words um, that derive from them mean something that's kind of a simplified caricature of, of what the, the original schools of philosophy that they refer to, basically. Stoicism, um, though, just means toughing out, basically, with it's a lowercase s theory of emotion and therapy. So it's, it's really a very, very different thing. And uh, sometimes having a stiff up to what the Stoics tell us about our emotions. Now, there's also a large body of research, not from one guy, but from lots of in completely independent research teams around the world, in health research and also in psychological research about stoicism as a psychological trait. And there are several psychological tools that we use, questionnaire tools, that we use to measure stoicism as a psychological trait. And the consensus among many different researchers based on the data is that lowercase stoicism, in many cases, leads not to psychological resilience, but to psychological vulnerability, weakness. Wow. Right? So it's a paradox because people believe that it's a form of toughness. Like I was saying yeah. about anger earlier, actually it's the opposite. People right. who are stoic are weak and vulnerable. They're more prone to develop psychological and emotional problems in the future. Mm -hmm. These are weak men and women, like fundamentally, because they have no idea how to deal with their emotions. They use the crudest, most simplistic, knuckleheaded way of responding to emotion, which is just to try and hide from it. It's a form of avoidance. It's fear-based. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, people who are lowercase stoic are frightened of their own fear. So they try to conceal it from others and hide it from themselves. They suppress it. Um, they don't seek appropriate mental health advice or professional support or health advice from other people. They don't go to the doctor. Right? A good analogy would be like somebody who's got toothache. So someone who's lowercase stoic, literally, like without, I'm just going to tough this out and ignore it, but mm. somebody who's got common sense toughing it out like, although they think that's strength, it's a vulnerability because it exposes them to all sorts of prob health problems in the long run because they're not getting the underlying issue fixed. And it's fear by the scale to go to the dentist. So if I don't want to go to the dentist, right? That's not tough. Like, that's fragility. Like, it makes you weak and exposes you to problems, maybe even an early grave, right? You don't go to the doctor like, or go and seek. Um, other appropriate social or psychological support for your problems. But it's deeply messed up that mm -hmm. in our culture, we view this as if it was toughness or strength. And it's the opposite. These are frail people. Like, these are cowardly, weak-minded individuals, right? I don't say that lightly. Like, it's the definition of weak-mindedness um, to be lowercase stoic in that regard. And it is not what ancient stoicism teaches us. So there's a body of research that shows this. We also have questionnaire studies on capital S stoicism that show statistically for what it's worth. Um, we tested the hypothesis that there would be no correlation statistically between the Liverpool stoicism scale, which measures like this suppression of emotions and so on, and capital S stoicism, the Greek philosophy. And what are, are the research conducted by Tim LeBon, the research director of modern stoicism, found from, uh, I think, about a thousand correlation. 
Um, so that uh, not only uh, are they not the same thing, but to a small extent, they're actually the opposites. Like people um, who exhibit, uh, who are into Greek Stoic philosophy are actually slightly less likely than average to do some of the things that people call having a stiff upper lip. Um, another part of this has to do with the cognitive theory of emotion. I was just explaining this to a guy recently um, who, who had written a book on the subject. And uh, if you understand the emotions are complex and they consist of multiple ingredients. So anxiety is a cake baked of many ingredients, right? It's not just a kind of lump. It's made of several bits. It's like a, a clock, right? There's different components that make your anxiety work, your anger work, right? Obviously, if you're a psychologist, you, you kind of look at how it analyze how it actually functions. Whereas most people talk about anger and anxiety as if they're just like a lump of stuff. Sure. Like it's a very primitive and it's a knuckleheaded theory of emotion, right? right. So if you understand that cognition is one of those ingredients and it's integral uh, to maintaining these, then um, trying to have a stiff upper lip, if you're anxious and conceal it, prevents you from identifying what the belief is that's making you anxious and questioning whether it's actually true. The therapist used to think it was impossible to treat panic disorder. Because like, the uh, psychoanalysts had negligible success rate with it. They made it worse, if anything, right? And then um, people sometimes question how much progress there is in the field of psychotherapy. But researchers will point to the treatment of panic disorder as a good example of, of clear progress. So in the mid-1980s, a researcher called David Clark in the UK um, developed a treatment protocol for panic attacks that has had like a 90% success rate. A very simple cognitive behavioural approach that suddenly took it from zero to hero. So it was a problem that people thought was maybe even biological. It couldn't be treated. They suddenly figured out how to treat it really easily. And now it's one of the most treatable um, conditions. Now, many, but not all, like many people who have severe panic attacks believe they're having a heart attack, right? So they, 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 they feel a tightness and pain in their chest. They feel kind of disoriented and breathless. And they think they're about to have a heart attack and die if the anxiety gets worse, right? Uh, and essentially, they're wrong. Like it, it's a misinterpretation of physical sensations. Um, so, but the belief that they're going to have a heart attack frightens them, right? As it would if you 100% believed that you were just about to drop dead from a heart attack, you'd be totally. scared, right? Yeah. What if you believe that people who have panic attacks typically try to have a stiff upper lip? Like their way of coping often is through stoicism. So they'll, they'll try and just kind of force themselves to ignore it or force themselves to relax or block it or conceal it from other people because they're super embarrassed. They don't want other people to see it. So they stay home and they don't mm -hmm. go out because they don't mm -hmm. want to be in situations where people might see them panicking. Right. Um, they conceal the kind of symptoms of it from other people and they try and block it from their own mind. That makes it much worse. Um, and yet if they allow themselves to experience the anxiety, and proved to themselves that it was harmless and that it had nothing to do with having a heart attack, mm -hmm. like that was just a big mistake that they'd made, then that would potentially eliminate the main underlying assumption that's maintaining the anxiety in the first place, right? So that's a good example of a situation where lowercase stoicism is toxic, and directly contributes to maintaining uh, a severe emotional disorder mm -hmm. that can be extremely debilitating to 
panic attacks don't leave the house, for example, um, because they don't want to be in a situation where they might have a panic attack outdoors. Um, so it can become very uh, uh, impactful on people's quality of life if they're not careful. So that's just one example. I can give you many, many, many examples of ways in which trying to have a stiff upper lip is toxic. Like it is stupid because it prevents you. It's literally stupid because it prevents you from looking at the underlying beliefs and correcting the mistaken ones. So it forces you to maintain a bunch of false, irrational, mistaken beliefs. It's it's like as if you in another any other area of life. Um, self or had got some facts wrong, you stuck your fingers in your ears and went la 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 people would think you're an idiot. Like and you're never gonna correct any of your mistakes. Like you go to school and you know like you when you talk about your homework and the lecturer says actually you know you made the mistake there you go la 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 like that's like Loki the Loki stoicism is the emotional equivalent of that. Like it would be more resilient to allow yourself to experience your feelings and to identify the behaviors and the thinking patterns that maintain them and to question things rationally and objectively. That's what genuinely resilient people do. Lowercase stoicism is fake resilience that's mm. paper thin in reality. And it tends to, especially over the longer term, uh, lead to, to more and more problems. That's not to say in... Sometimes, um, and I, even I would admit that distraction techniques or like avoidant techniques could be adaptive in acute situations in the short term. So maybe if you're in the dentist chair and he's drilling you for a moment and it really hurts, you might it might be fine to go la 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 la. Sure, I'll do something to sure. distract so for mm -hmm. a sec, you know, thirty seconds just to yeah. kind of get through that situation. But it's not good if you do it every day in your relationships and at work and mm -hmm. things like that. Avoiding strategies over the long term are toxic. Very cool. Oh man, this was fun. I want to close down by asking you the, the hardest question. The question is, what is your favorite Marcus Aurelius quote? Do you have one that you lean on and it's like, that one is my favorite? Second, what was it? The oh. hardest question? Yeah, the hardest question. And I say that tongue in cheek. What is your favorite Marcus Aurelius quote? Is the oh. one that you lean on and you're like, that one is my favorite? It's, it's very hard because I've studied Marcus Aurelius for such a like 25 years or something crazy. Now, like, so, and I've written three books about him. So it, there's, there's so many, many, many things that he said. I mean, the, the most famous quote from Meditations is. Book two, passage one, that says every morning when you wake up, uh, tell yourself that you're going to meet envious and treacherous people and so on. And I, I think this is an important um, quote. I think what he's saying in a way is, as I said earlier, wisdom consists in recognizing, in a, in a way, forgiving people for their fallibility and, and realizing that that's what life is about. Like we're all fallible and we're all imperfect like and denying that would be stupid um, and it's going to lead to problems expecting everyone to be perfect expecting no one to ever lie to you you know expecting no one to ever be cowardly would just be crazy like but people act when bad things happen people act shocked the stoics thought that was weird like, so somebody steals your wallet. You go, I can't believe it. Someone stole my wallet. So it's like people's wallet gets stolen every day, buddy. Have you never heard <laughs> yeah. that this is a thing? 
Like, what do you, like, like, but it's a strange psychological phenomenon. And it's part of what we said earlier about being a drama queen and rhetoric. We, we talk about catastrophes, like, how could this ever happen? That would never have mind. Why would anyone do this? Whereas, if we're viewing it objectively, we would say these are all things that are unsurprising. Like, they, they happen. Um, periodically to other people, why it shouldn't be a big shock if they happen to me. That's what he's saying in that passage. He's saying, of course, you're going to meet treacherous people. Of course, people are going to lie to you. Right. You know, it shouldn't be a big shock. And you'd have to be incredibly st stupid to be shocked by that. And yet people act as if they're shocked by it. Um, because we fall into this trap of hyperbole and wanting to make a drama out of uh, things that happen to us. So I, I think that's a very interesting passage in the meditation. It's interesting in terms of his life as well, because he was betrayed on a huge historic scale by people. They had a civil war. Um, one of his generals rebelled against him and instigated the civil war. That's a pretty big example of a betrayal. He wasn't talking about his mother-in-law, maybe kind of, you know, um, talking about him behind his back or something like that. He was, he was talking about civil war and stuff. And um, they, there was a, he just had a massive invasion of Germanic tribes uh, uh, across the Alps into Italy. It's a huge historic betrayals he's talking about. He's trying to train himself to see these things as just like the cycle of nature. Like, and, you know, this is, you know, shit happens kind of thing. You know, they, these, these things happen in life. You need to be ready for them when they occur and not, you know, act as if you're surprised by them, but take them in your stride. Very cool. Awesome. What a great place to end it from, from Marcus Aurelius. So, uh, Donald, if I want to point my listeners in your direction, obviously get the book. It's phenomenal. But are there any other ways that I can point them in your direction on what you're working on next? My website is just donaldrobertson.name. And so if they go there, there's like all sorts of things to check out. Awesome. Cool. Donald, I really appreciate you taking the time. That was a lot of fun, a lot of uh, great information for people. And uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. 